Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 359. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. Then we have the main fiction, and it is by a regular cohort to Starship Sova, Dennis N. Liam. Dennis M. Lane with his short fiction, A Long Till Spring. There you go. And narrated by Dennis as well. How cool is that? I'll also be, you know, flitting in and out with SofaCon 2 news. That's all coming up in today's Starship Sofa Show 359. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So, first off is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to talk to you about a phenomenon in my backyard, right where I live, and how that phenomenon has, over time, contributed to the science fiction tradition. Now, I live in Appalachia, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Now, I'm originally from almost half a continent away, in Oklahoma, but my husband grew up in Appalachia in the Blue Ridge Mountains, north of here in Virginia. Where we live in the western part of North Carolina is a really gorgeous area, and between the mountains and the waterfalls, it's so picturesque that a lot of films have been shot here, most recently The Hunger Games, but also films like The Last of the Mohicans, and Thanks to the Cherokee Nation and to the immigrants who settled in this area from the colonial period onward, this region has a very rich history and culture, and of course, folklore. But the phenomenon I'm going to tell you about isn't just folklore. It isn't just the stuff of legend. It is real. It has been documented. And it is, as of now, still unexplained. Just one county over, actually just about on the line that borders that county from the one in which I live, is a mountain known as Brown Mountain. And Brown Mountain is the home of the Brown Mountain Lights. The Brown Mountain Lights are lights that appear after dark, particularly in the months of September, October, and November. They appear, they glow, And sometimes they move in an aerodynamically significant kind of way. One of the earliest published accounts of a sighting of the Brown Mountain Lights 
dates from September 24, 1913, and was published in the Charlotte Daily Observer in Charlotte, North Carolina. In that account, a fisherman claimed to have seen mysterious lights just above the horizon every night, circular in shape, red in color. This account alone gives the Brown Mountain Lights a good century of history, but the oral accounts around the area suggest that the Brown Mountain Lights have been seen for many, many years before 1913. Now, you don't have to take my word for the fact that the lights are there. They are. In fact, if you go to Google and look them up, you can find countless photos and film footage of the lights from private persons, from investigators, even from National Geographic television. Over the last 100 years, multiple government agencies have investigated the lights, as have many individual private investigators. Today, there's even a website maintained by a professor and students at Appalachian State University compiling scientific evidence and information about the lights. One thing seems to be agreed upon by all investigators, and that is the usual suspects, the usual explanations that debunk so-called ghost lights or even UFO lights don't fit here. The swamp gas explanation simply doesn't fit the kind of geography that is there. Neither does the suggestion that lights from some other source, for example, from trains or automobiles or even houses, fit the facts because there are no lights in those areas from such sources. So, everyone knows that they're there, but no one can explain what they are. That doesn't keep people from coming to look. There are several overlooks from the Blue Ridge Parkway that are known for being particularly good for Brown Mountain Lights viewing. In fact, one at milepost 310 is known as the Brown Mountain Light Overlook. There's also a Brown Mountain Overlook on North Carolina Highway 181. And that's proven so popular that with the help from the citizens of the city of Morganton, that Overlook recently has been improved in order to be friendlier and more accommodating to the people who come simply to watch for the lights. I've asked people I know who grew up in this area, whose family is from this area, if they know about the Brown Mountain Lights, and I'm yet to find anyone who just doesn't take them as a given, that they just grew up knowing about the Brown Mountain Lights. And as you can imagine, quite a lot of folklore and storytelling has grown up around this phenomenon. For instance, one of the campfire stories, ghost-like stories that has evolved over the years, suggests that the Brown Mountain Lights are the ghostly reflection of a Cherokee woman searching for her lost lover. There's also a bluegrass song written by Scotty Wiseman called The Brown Mountain Lights, and that song suggests that the light is a lantern carried by a faithful old slave coming back from the grave who is searching for his lost master. That song has been recorded many times by groups and musicians as diverse as the Hillmen, 
the Kingston Trio, the Country Gentleman, Acoustic Syndicate, Yonder Mountain String Band, Sonny James, and Roy Orbison. But what interests me most, what I find most fascinating, is that the Brown Mountain Lights have become a part of the science fiction tradition. Now, to some of you, the story of a mountain in the Blue Ridge Mountains from which strange lights are seen to emanate, well, that might remind you of something familiar. That's because Brown Mountain was the basis for Witch Mountain, as in Escape to Witch Mountain, that began as a science fiction novel written by Alexander H. Key in 1968. It was adapted into one of the most successful live-action Walt Disney films of all time, Escape to Witch Mountain, in 1975. That was followed by two sequel films, Return from Witch Mountain in 1978 and Beyond Witch Mountain in 1982. I should point out that the first two of these films had some pretty high-powered stars behind the villains, Donald Pleasance, Christopher Lee, Betty Davis. An attempt to turn the film franchise into a television series in the 80s failed, but the original novel was reimagined, readapted with Race to Witch Mountain in 2009, starring Dwayne Johnson or The Rock. Key's original novel follows two orphaned siblings, Tony and Tia, both of whom seem to have paranormal abilities. They go through a whole series of trials, finding that most people are untrustworthy and greedy and suspicious, but a few heroic people are truly good, and the fact that they are few makes their goodness all the more poignant. Eventually, Tony and Tia end up in the Blue Ridge Mountains with the discovery that they are, in fact, extraterrestrials, part of a group of aliens who relocated to Earth because their own planet was dying. And the mountain lights take on cosmic origins and implications. This isn't the only time the brown mountain lights are linked to aliens. The X-Files has had more than one go-round with the brown mountain lights. Let's start with the episode Field Trip, the 21st episode of the sixth season of The X-Files, originally airing in 1999. In the episode Field Trip, Mulder and Scully begin investigating the case of missing hikers who were found dead in the vicinity of Brown Mountain. Mulder, of course, immediately makes the connection to the Brown Mountain lights and has an entire theory about, you know, alien abduction the whole nine yards. The partners go to Brown Mountain, but they end up waylaid by an underground massive fungus, uh, which in turn gives the answer to the mystery. So the Brown Mountain lights really weren't involved in that episode as more than a red herring. But it's very fun to hear Fox Mulder go through his entire description of the Brown Mountain lights and all the lore and all the history surrounding them. And this isn't the only time that the X-Files tangled with the Brown Mountain Lights. Two years earlier, in the two-part Night Lights story by John Rossum, in issues 18 and 19 of the official X-Files comics, 
the central mystery also revolves around the brown mountain lights. But wait, there's more. The 2014 found footage science fiction film Alien Abduction, which, if you like films of that oeuvre, I definitely recommend. It struck chords for me of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Signs and even a bit of The Blair Witch Project. At any rate, the 2014 film Alien Abduction credits aliens with the brown mountain lights. In a Dread Central interview with director Maddie Beckerman, Beckerman admits to having seen the lights and using that inspiration to create the story. When asked if the brown mountain lights were real, he said, Oh yeah, it's very, very real. I've seen the lights myself and taken video of them and pictures of them. It's completely real. They are about four or five feet wide, and they shoot off in different directions, and they float above the mountain line. It's completely freaky. End quote. One of the things I like best about the film Alien Abduction is the fact that it was filmed in and around Brown Mountain. It is as authentic as you can possibly get. And yes, I admit to thoroughly enjoying the creepiness factor of seeing a film about alien contact and abduction and spookiness take place in areas I've driven, I've been, I know. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, an unexplained phenomenon that has launched science fiction novels, television, comics, and film. I'll end the segment by quoting from the official park sign that you can find on the Brown Mountain Overlook on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Quote, Brown Mountain Lights. For hundreds of years, people have seen mysterious lights floating above Brown Mountain here in Burke County, North Carolina. The lights may be seen from this spot and locations further west, such as Rattlesnake Knob near Cold Springs and Wiseman's View on the Burke-McDowell County line. Thousands of people have witnessed the strange lights, and legends of the lights date back to as early as the year 1200. A single light or hundreds of lights can appear, according to various accounts. The lights are said to float up the ridge and hover above Brown Mountain, where they drift about, change color, blink, and then disappear. The U.S. Geological Survey, the U.S. Weather Service, and the Smithsonian investigated the phenomenon and proposed many causes for the lights. But none of the theories have been proven to be the actual cause of the lights. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, your freaky fact for the day and your look back into genre history. I look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you. There you go. Amy, what can I say? Thank you so much. And it just so happens what a lead in. Amy H. Sturgis is on SofaCon 2. And I'll tell you a little bit about what Amy's doing. But it has been funded. If you hadn't realised, we're actually doing a science fiction convention online. It's in March 14th and 15th, 2015. And I did the Kickstarter, as you know. And last week, I put the video up. Did you like the video? A big thank you to Dave Robinson and who's... Protect, protecting Project Pulp host and Kenny Park for putting that together. 
Well, gentlemen, what can I say? Thank you so much. So, yes, the Kickstarter got funded within less than 12 hours. I'm sure it was, well, I say 12, it was probably about 14 hours and it was funded. And that's just, you know, I was just over the moon with that. So, you know, a big thank you to everyone, kind of massive thank you to everyone who's kind of taken part in that. Like I say, they're still ongoing. And with Amy just doing that, looking back at genre history there, Ames is up for two. Ames is, we've tried to get this a while as well, you know. We tried to get Amy to interview David Brin, oh, probably last year, and something went wrong. I don't know what it was, I can't remember what it was there now. So now Amy is like interviewing the guest of honour, David Brin, at SofaCon. And I've also asked Ames to do her Sherlock Holmes and science fiction talk. We did a lecture, you know, like an online video lecture, I think it was in 2013. And Amy just sat down and, and gave a talk about Sherlock Holmes, you know, and the connections with science fiction. And it sold out, do you know what I mean? It kind of, when we did it, through the go to webinar, the, the event sold out. And then when we were in Worldcon, Amy kind of revised it and touched it up a little bit. It was sold out. You couldn't get in. And there was a lot of people down there for Starship Sofa. Couldn't get in. Do you know what I mean? So by popular demand, Amy's going to do that again. So if anyone missed it and wants to come along to SofaCon, that, that's on the cards as well. So there'll be a link. Well, just type in SofaCon too. You know what I mean? It's everywhere. It's on my Facebook page. I'll put a link on on this page here as well. It's it's all there. But it would be lovely to see us on that event day. Do you know what I mean? So you can get the tickets from Kickstarter. So the main fiction is our very own film talk, Dennis M. Lane with A Long Till Spring. Give you a little prop I'll give you the proper bio of Dennis. Dennis M. Lane is a South African-based writer who has been who has seen his work gain more of an audience over 2013. His 2012 collection of stories and poems garnered him a rising nominations and a Dwarf Stars nomination. He had a short story published in Dark Beauty magazine annual steampunk issue and had a fiction flash fiction podcast on Tales to Terrify. His novel, his first novel, Tatlua reached the dizzling heights of number four in the teen science fiction listings on the Kobo site. How cool is that? Go on, Dennis, man. And his second novel, The King's Jewel, came out in August. As his contribution to this year's All Hallows Read, Dennis has signed an agreement with the Wonder Reader World Reader organisation to make all of his books freely available to more than half a million readers in the developing world. God, Dennis, that gets the hairs on the back of my neck. Thank you, sir. What a, what a gesture. So kind. And like I said, this story is narrated by the one and only Dennis M. Lane. He can do anything. He can swim like a fish. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present A Long Till Spring by Dennis M. Lane. A Long Time Till Spring by Dennis M. Lane. It had been a long day of walking through the ghostly canyons of the Orbin jungle for Billy Bob and his fellow young'uns. The sun was dropping behind the cave cliffs, which made them seem taller and more mysterious to the little boy. Billy Bob hung on to the hand of Mummy Jan, the elder who had cared for him all his life, and he hoped that Danal, the leader of the clan, would call a halt soon. It had been a long day, 
and the Orbin jungle was strange and unnatural, not the same as walking across plains or through the forests. The wet, slushy snow had been soaking through his moccasins, and Billy Bob was looking forward to getting close to a fire. Mummy Jan had said that winter has come early this year. That's why we've come into the Orbin jungle. It's a long time till spring, and we need to get as much food as we can and try and find some shelter. Billy Bob was now one open hand old and knew that he was big enough to learn stuff and needed to start helping the clan. He wished that the day that he became a warrior and could go on the hunt would hurry up and come. The clan silently trudged between the towering walls of Grey Crete, constantly on the lookout for predators. For weeks now, the nights had been disturbed by the howling of wolves, and only last week, Sally, one of Billy Bob's age group, had simply disappeared, and so it was clear that the enemies of the clan were also hungry. Up ahead, Danal climbed to the top of a jumbled hill of Crete and looked around as the guttering sun disappeared behind the gap-toothed cliffs. He signalled over to the left and pointed out a good clear spot where they could make camp for the night. There were three pathways leading into the clearing and Danal placed guards on each one. Billy Bob smiled with relief that he could rest his tired feet, but first he had to help Mummy Jan collect some sticks. The members of the clan all knew their roles and it wasn't long before there was a roaring fire with a group of elders crouched around it, cooking the various food items that they'd caught or found during the day's trek. Soon the clan was sat around the fire at the centre of the open area, all except the guards. They were warriors, each at the prime of their lives, no more than two clasped hands of winters old. They were elders in the clan and knew the stories of the before times and so were content to watch for wolves or bears while the young'uns were instructed in the history of the world. Once everyone had eaten the meagre pickings of the day, Teller stood up and ranged around the fire, looking at the young'uns, watching that they were paying attention. He had no need to worry. They were like the dust on the plain, waiting for a storm, ready to soak up every drop. He reached into his satchel and pulled out the delicate mask of the Teller. He settled the thin arms over his ears and peered out through the twin rings of bone. I have a story, he called, and the young'uns cheered. Are you sitting comfortably? Yes, shouted the young'uns. Yes, laughed the elders. Then I'll begin, replied Teller in the age-old response. In the days before now... The tribe was big, so big that each of you here would be a chief of your own clan, so big that the tribe built villages out of Crete because the caves were too small, and they were clever. The wise ones of the tribe knew magic and could make boxes move on the Crete. People could sit in the boxes and they would take them anywhere. The young'uns laughed. They loved the crazy tales of the before times. Teller smiled and continued. They were so clever that they took wolves and turned them into helpers. They even learned how to make winter in summer so that their meat would not spoil. By now, the young'uns were rolling on their backs, kicking their little legs in the air at the thought of such wonderful things. 
everyone in the tribe could be a wise one, because they knew a magic called read writing. The elders could say everything that they knew, and it would be put in little pictures on pieces of paper. Younguns, no older than you, could understand what was on the paper and become wise. This was just too much to believe. That younguns could know what the wise ones knew. The younguns looked sideways at each other and giggled, but didn't say anything. But shouted Teller, and the younguns sat still, their eyes wide. But the wise ones were not as clever as they thought. Teller looked around sternly at the younguns, and they settled down, staring at the elder in anticipation. The wise ones believed that they had become gods. And they experimented. They learned how to change the way that younguns of the tribe were born. At first, it was good. No younguns were born with twisted legs. None were born blind. At this, the elders shook their heads. They had seen far too many younguns born wrong, so wrong that they had to be left on the ground to die when the clan moved on. A world where younguns were born perfect would be like heaven. But they knew the story. Knew that it would not end well. Teller looked around the group, shaking his head sadly. One day, a wise one did an experiment and got a youngun that looked perfect. He was so happy with what he had done that he wanted to make it so that all younguns were perfect. He took the magic from the experiment and put it inside a bird so that it could take it from clan to clan. The bird flew, spreading the magic from place to place, so that everyone would be perfect. The people of the different clans didn't know what he had done, but the magic touched everyone. It covered the whole world, so that even the tribes in other lands felt the touch of the magic. At first, when the people found out, they were happy. When younguns came, they were all perfect. But the wise one was wrong. When the first youngun grew older, he couldn't understand the magic of the reed writing. The wise one looked inside him and saw that he had made a mistake. He had broken the chromoatin. Then the broken magic spread through the tribes, and it made everyone forget the reed writing. The elders shook their heads. How could the wise ones have thrown away such a gift? All of the magic in the before times. Needed the reed writing, and now it was gone. Without it, the tribes couldn't make the boxes move. They couldn't build things out of crete. The wise ones tried to teach the magic to the younguns, but they were forgetting it themselves. Day by day, they forgot more, until the boxes stopped, and every clan had to live in their own place, look after their own people. Some of the wise ones went mad. They said that dead was better than stupid, and the tribes began to fight. Fire flew around the world and killed many. Hunger killed more, until only a few of the people were left. Our first elders wandered alone, meeting up one by one, until our clan was born. The first elders said that one day the broken chromoatin could fix itself. That younguns would be born that could use the magic of reed writing, but that has never happened. We people can look at the magic signs on the walls, 
but they mean nothing. Without the magic of read writing, the people had to learn new ways how to catch fish, how to skin a rabbit. Many of the people died because they could not learn. But our clan survived. Now, we elders teach you young'uns how to live, how to feed yourselves, how to be good members of the clan. And, when you are older, you will teach all you know to the new young'uns as they come. The young'uns sat, silently thinking about when they would be big, when they would be elders with the job of leading and teaching. Dunnell stood up and made to go and check the elders on guard. Time for you young'uns to sleep. The young'uns didn't bother complaining. They knew that Dunnell wouldn't listen. So they all got as close to the fire as they could, wrapped themselves in blankets, then laid down on the crete to sleep. For a while, Billy Bob lay looking at the lights in the sky. He was excited because Mummy Jan had said that she was going to teach him how to catch the rats that lived in the strange square caves of the Orbin jungle. The next morning, after eating some nuts that Mummy Jan had in a satchel, Billy Bob and the Elder set off down a canyon. The clan had split up to forage for the morning. Once the sun began to drop, they would gather together again and look for a safe place to sleep. Before setting off, Mummy Jan had knelt in front of her charge and put her hands on his shoulders, looking serious. The Orbin jungle has many traps, many places to fall, many places to be cornered. So, if I say run, you don't ask, just run. Billy Bob nodded. Mummy Jan was an elder. She had survived everything that the world had thrown at her. She knew what she was talking about. The first thing that they did was to go inside one of the caves. There was a collection of strange markings above the cave. Rowena's fashions. But it was like the reed writing was invisible to them. They ignored it and climbed in. They had to step carefully over the broken knife ice, that strange shiny stuff that covered the cave openings and could cut through flesh if you stood on it. Once inside, they looked around to see if they could find anything useful. Strange figures stood silently in the gloom, and Billy Bob shuddered with fear. He grabbed Mummy Jan's hand and she squeezed it. Don't be scared. They aren't real people. They are people's shapes that the wise ones used to dress up. Let's see if we can find any clothes. They searched the cave, but none of the people's shapes had clothes. They had been taken long ago by some other clan. At the back of the cave, they found some steps. Mummy Jan took Billy Bob's hand and led him up. A long way up, until they found themselves outside, on top of the big square cliff. They stood there in the crisp winter sun, and Mummy Jan pointed out the landmarks. See there, all that green in one spot? Billy Bob nodded. That was a place for people to meet, in the before times. Lots of things grow there, so we'll go in that direction. But what about the rats? asked Billy Bob. You said you'd teach me to catch rats. We will look for them on the way. Don't worry, there are plenty of them in the Orbin jungle. They went back down the steps, and Billy Bob felt his legs hurting. He was used to walking all day with the clan, but all this up and down was new to him. Back outside, they set off in the direction of the green. They walked for a while, looking into caves as they went. 
All of them had broken knife ice, so Mummy Jan said it wasn't worth looking for stuff. They got to a corner, and Mummy Jan froze, almost crushing Billy Bob's hand in hers. She looked around, sniffing, and then relaxed for a second. But then there was a growl. Run! shouted Mummy Jan, pushing Billy Bob back the way they'd come. I'll find you back at the clan! Billy Bob didn't question. He ran. Mummy Jan ran down the side canyon, away from the wolves that were flowing out of a cave. Maybe they hadn't seen her little charge. Maybe she could lead them away from him. As she ran, the howling of the wolves picked up, and they bounded after her. One wolf, a little behind the pack, stopped at the corner. Before chasing the woman, it wanted to see where she had come from. It looked down the canyon and saw one of the two legs young running away. Quicker than thought, it was often running and after the little figure. Billy Bob glanced back and saw the wolf on his trail. He thought back to the lessons that were taught to all young'uns. Get high. He didn't want to go into a cave, in case there were no steps at the back and he was trapped. Instead, he ran for a pile of rubble. Maybe he could climb up something that the wolf couldn't reach. Billy Bob pulled himself up the broken Cretan metal, and, as he struggled upwards, he slipped and his knee raked down a jagged edge, spurting blood. Billy Bob yelped, but carried on, aiming for the small bits that the wolf couldn't get onto. But the wolf kept on coming. It was jumping from piece to piece, getting closer all the time. Billy Bob crawled along a crumbling beam, hoping that it would be too small for the wolf. But the wolf was having none of it. It stepped out onto the crete and padded forward, its long tongue hanging out of its toothy mouth. But as it got closer, the beam moved. A slight wobble at first, but enough to worry the wolf. It stopped, not sure whether to go forward or to try and back up. Then it seemed to make a decision. It barked and bounded forward at Billy Bob. But the crete moved more. With a lurch, the precarious jumble tipped. Billy Bob fell into a hole that opened up in the rubble. The wolf did, too, howling as it fell. Then all was black. Billy Bob woke up coughing, his mouth full of dust. He didn't know how long it had been, but it felt like a long time. Pulling himself to his feet, Billy Bob looked around him. The first thing that he saw was the body of the wolf, hanging over a piece of broken crete, the rusty metal bones of the cave sticking through its side. A pool of blood thick in the dust. Thankful that he hadn't been stuck by the metal spikes, Billy Bob searched around, looking for a way to climb out of the hole. But the sides were too steep. No broken bits stuck out of the walls. Billy Bob knew he would never climb out, so he searched the bottom of the cave, looking for a tunnel. And he found one. Above the tunnel were some strange marks, like those above some of the caves in the canyons. These marks looked like Level B parking, but Billy Bob couldn't read writing what they meant. Billy Bob went through the hole in the wall and into the big cave beyond. In the cave were some of those funny little metal huts that were in the canyons or dotted in rusty heaps on the ribbon creek across the plain. These were different to the ones he had seen in the outside. These were smooth, shiny, the beds inside not eaten away by rats. He walked between the brightly coloured huts and through the echoing cave until he came to another hole. He went through and smiled. There were steps going up. It could be a way out. 
He climbed up the steps, the cut on his knee hurting something terrible. Finally, Billy Bob was outside in the canyon. He stayed pressed close to the canyon wall and looking around for danger. He couldn't see anything moving, but like an autumn wind whistling through the trees, he could hear wolves in the distance. Billy Bob was frightened and alone, so he decided it would be best to hide and wait until dark. Then he could look for the guarding fires and find his way back to the clan. Billy Bob looked around to see if there was a safe place to wait. The best thing, he thought, would be to hide at the back of a cave. So, careful not to cut himself on the knife ice, he climbed into a cave and began to explore. The cave was filled with strange square things. Each one was full up with some sort of leaf. Billy Bob ripped a leaf out and took a bite, but it was dry, and he struggled to get it down his throat. He couldn't eat this. Then one of the things caught his eye. It was like the others, but different. Bigger across, but thinner, with fewer leaves inside. And the front had a brightly coloured picture on it. The picture looked a bit like Billy Bob. So he picked it up and opened it. The first leaf had a big picture of an apple. Billy Bob knew it was an apple. Mummy Jan had given him one to eat just last year. It had been sweet and juicy. Billy Bob loved that apple. His belly rumbled as he remembered it. There was reed writing under the picture of the apple. Billy Bob stared at it. For some reason, he knew it meant something. He just knew. For long minutes he stared, looking at the apple, then at the reed writing, looking at the apple. The apple. A strange thought came into Billy Bob's mind. Maybe... That reed writing meant apple. With trembling fingers, he turned the page. There was a picture of a ball. There you go, Dennis. What can I say? Double the thank you. Da thank you for the story and thank you for the narration. Just top marks, sir. And like I said, you know, that gesture of letting your work go to kind of developing countries. Just, man, what a, what a, what a, a gift. Thank you so much. So that is Starship Sovers 359 put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you will think about coming over to SovaCon. We've got lots of tickets there still. There's still pledges to be had and snapped up. Um, it would be lovely to see you. Do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic. Support this show. Get, get it, you know, get the, the thing up and running. It would be great. Until next week, I'd just like to say a good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.